Hello and welcome to the State of Play podcast. I think this is episode 30. Am I wrong? I don't know. I think it's... I've lost track too. You know, when we, we, it, was, it was easier for us to keep track of it when we were doing it bi-weekly. If I'm correct, it's just 28. Yeah, I'm so wrong. I wasn't even close. <laughs> I wasn't even close. Uh, Matt, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Uh, yeah, it's uh, raining over here in New York, New Jersey area. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I can't complain, Elon two-game win streak and uh that makes me happy so i'm doing well yeah it, it seems like the fortunes of arsenal and, and milan are kind of inverse in in their kind of likelihoods of succeeding which is it means one of us is on a down or one of us is is happy <laughs> yeah. consistently whenever we record this podcast which is funny but so theo hernandez scoring in both nets he's uh he's a man on fire isn't he theo hernandez is he your is, top scorer he is i believe he is I believe he's top scorer. Yeah, if I'm correct, either he's <laughs> either he's top scorer or he's one behind Piontek. If I'm correct, I think Piontek maybe has three penalties and one goal from open play. Um, I'd have to get the the fact, the fact boys uh, on that uh, ASAP. But yeah, I think Vendo Hernandez has four goals, which is unheard of for a left back. And the fact that he's even in the conversation as being Milan's top scorer is pretty pretty uh, pathetic. If you want to talk about it from Milan's standpoint as a team that needs obviously goals, but. Nonetheless, if Milan are getting results and they're getting wins, I don't think many people are going to complain. They just want to start seeing a little bit more consistency in the final third. And we actually saw yesterday in the game against Bologna, which um, it was very encouraging. And I think, you know, many people, like including myself, didn't have such great expectations for um, the type of football and the type of results that Stefano Pioli was going to bring once he was brought in in place of Giampaolo. But I think he's uh, done a good job, all things considered. He's simplified the way that Milan's playing. He's also getting... Guys like Jack Bonaventura, uh, Andrea Conti, Ismail Benacer to play really kind of key roles. And, you know, I think if you're able to get, you know, the production ramped up from Piontek, Suso, and some of these other guys, I think, you know, all things considered, Milan can be in a pretty favorable position. Because if you look at the table, I think what they're eight or nine back from fourth. Now, that may seem like a lot, but in the grand scheme of things, that fourth place team is Cagliari, who haven't, they're not battle tested. So, this is very wide open, in my opinion. I think it's going to make for a fascinating January to see what Milan do, to see if they can kind of get you know a little bit further towards being a team that should be a uh, force to be reckoned with. But um, yeah, I, I can't really complain at this point in time. No complaints. Uh, a few complaints from me, though. Arsenal still looking for a manager. Marcelino, the latest guy linked. But interesting, I was saying to you that not that many of the... UK outlets are kind of talking about him. It's mostly about uh, Pochettino, um, Arteta, Ancelotti. Um, th- those are the main ones that are being talked about. Uh, Marcelino seems to be one that's coming more from Spain and more from kind of other parts of the country, other parts of the world, rather. Yeah, um, it's it's very. Um, I, know, I know we talked. We've been talking about this on the previous episodes, right? Who would come in? And you know, this past week, even we we got a little, somewhat of a. Uh, some news from Fabrizio Romano, one of the more reliable uh, you know, Italian football journalists. Um, and he pretty much said, he had pretty much came out with some quotes um, from Allegri himself, pretty much saying that, yeah, I'm not going to take any jobs. So I'll be, you know, my next, my next job will come pretty much in so many choices, so many words in June. So that obviously rules him out from Arsenal job. And I guess it's kind of one of those things where now you start kind of to eliminate who is not going to be in contention with an Arsenal job. And then who would be obviously a pretty good fit. And then you kind of dwindle it down to maybe two names. And I'm sure that's what's going to happen over the next week or so. But things are heating up. Obviously, the latest I've been reading now is um, that Gennaro Gattuso could become the next Napoli manager. 
uh, according to DiMarzio, on an 18-month deal, so pretty much finish the rest of the season, Damn. get another year. Um, and this could possibly happen for uh, Napoli after the game against Jenk in the Champions League, which, crazy enough, if they win and, Napoli, and uh, Liverpool do not, Napoli would finish top of the group, but you'd still have your manager possibly sacked, which is pretty strange to see. But, yeah, it's, it's really interesting to see how things are developing around uh, – you know, some of the top leagues with these coaching situations, because even in Serie A, you know, it's kind of a week to week thing. But, you know, there's still some clubs that have to sort out their coaching situation moving forward. And Napoli and Arsenal are probably the top of that list right now. Yeah, I mean. And Bayern, too. I mean, I don't know what Bayern, Bayern situation is kind of week to week. I think they're playing OK sometimes, but I think, you know, they, they, they're kind of in that position where they're not just going to completely commit to a guy. So those three situations mm-hmm. in general are probably the, 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 the most important from the manager's perspective. We're going to move on to Lazio Juve in a bit and kind of because we talked about Maurizio Sarri on the last episode quite a bit and whether or not he'd, one, been successful as a manager over the last kind of like 30 months or so, but more so whether or not he was, who has, if he has been a success rather at Juventus. But um, Enzaghi at Lazio, he seems to have done a stellar job so far. And I do wonder sometimes why... Some like his someone like his name isn't thrown about or banded about in you know maybe the Napoli job uh, you'd say maybe traditionally a bigger club you know Arsenal Bayern Munich um, what what do you make of him Matt I think Simone Inzaghi's been he's proven himself to be a pretty good manager these past couple of years with um, with Lazio I think you know you look at what he was able to do these past couple of seasons right you know two seasons ago um, if it wasn't for um, Inter's heroics late on the final match day Lazio would have been in the Champions League. Right. Obviously, that 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 situation there. Plus, last year they had a a little bit of a down year. Some people even thought that Simone Inzaghi was going to be one of the top candidates to coach Juve after uh, Max Allegri left. Um, And many Juventus fans were up in arms over that. They're like, this guy hasn't proven anything. We're really going to hire this manager Um, at this point in time when we have all this pressure to win the Champions League. You're going to hire this guy who hasn't proven he could win anything. And you know, fast forward a little bit. Inzaghi stays on as Lazio coach. Um, and many people in the, in the preseason predictions had them outside the top four. And Inzaghi and Lazio kind of took that to heart. They took that off- to, uh, offensively. And rightfully so, I think they're proving themselves to be a very adept, adequate team. A team that uh, obviously could score goals. Chiri Mobile um, and Luis Alberto, who's the top assist man in Europe. I think he's the first guy to get to 10 assists in, across all top five major leagues. Which speaks volumes to the type of player he is versus the one we saw at Liverpool, where he really wasn't given much of a chance under Brendan Rodgers. But if you look at Lazio's team top to bottom, they have a very balanced side, and you can see where, why they are succeeding the way they are, right? You know, in net, they got Strakosha, who's a nice goalkeeper. You have defensively, you have the veteran presence of uh, Francesco Acerbi, who is starting games for the Italian national team. And then you look in the midfield, right? You have Lucas Leva, who's been reborn in Italy since joining them, uh, joining Lazio from Liverpool. Milinkovic Savic, you have Luis Alberto, Joaquin Correa, you have Pure Immobile, who's the top scorer in Europe's top five leagues. So you start to look at everything between what's going on with Lazio, and it's really not surprising to see them put up some impressive numbers. Now, there was a lot of people that didn't expect this type of UA performance on the weekend, but I think if with the way things were going, it was only a matter of time before they were going to be um, defeated. Of course, this was their first defeat in all competitions this season. I think they were the last remaining undefeated side. And sure enough, it was Lazio to do it, right? At home in front of their own fans. They're playing well. Juventus are in a bit of a dire situation in terms of the results they're getting to performances, not meeting what the expectations were from the fans coming into the season under Sarri. So 
I think it's overall, the result was a little bit lopsided, but I think most Juventus fans were not surprised to see them kind of get punched and get the haymaker and get knocked out in this match because 3-1 results at home, a team like Juventus that hasn't really experienced many of those results over the past couple seasons. And for it to happen now, um, I think it's kind of a, a wake-up call for Juventus fans, and they're hoping that this could kind of be where things start to turn around because they really need to get in gear once it gets to um, you know, the second half of the season where right now, obviously, they're behind Inter on the table, but they're looking more towards the Champions League. And if they keep delivering these performances in the Champions League, they're not going to get far in the knockout stages. And I think that's what Juventus fans are most worried about. There's been a lot of rumblings or murmurings of, of Sarri out. What do you think the is the main issue the results or the way that Juventus is playing? I think it's a culmination of things. I think it's it's one of those things where you can look at parts of Juventus and say, okay, there's a lot of players that are improving and are playing well under Marito. Sorry, right? I mean, from a goalkeeping standpoint, obviously, Wojciech Szczesny has been sensational. Um, De Ligt has come to life uh, in recent weeks, despite a little bit of a rocky start. Him and Bonucci look very solid. That was a big concern coming in. Once Chiellini went out, how would Juventus' defense fare? Now, I will say this. They're, in terms of the defensive side of things, they are scoring goals, but they're leaking in more than they are accustomed to when they had that famed BBC era where they were uh, a team that wouldn't leak many goals in and they would be uh, just shutting teams out left, right, left, right, you know, front and center. So I think that's kind of one of the biggest areas that Juventus fans are concerned of is that if they go on, if they go on a road against a team who can score, who can play direct football and bring it to them, can they keep teams at bay and make things easier for themselves? Whereas in, in past years where they were able to rely on that defense where they maybe didn't have the, the top goal scorer or the offense clicking on and firing all cylinders uh, under Allegri, that's also something they have to look at. But it's, I think everything still rests on that midfield because if you look at the midfield players they have, you can ask any Juventus fan and there's going to be most of them who say, beyond Pjanic, I don't have any confidence in this, in this midfield in, in carrying – uh, a, a good opportunity to win a Champions League trophy. And I think that's what, what worries a lot of Juventus fans is that for all these years of neglecting the midfield and, and doing this and doing that, is this going to be, be the year where they finally have a shock bowing out very early and it makes them kind of reassess things on the market. But I don't know if it's necessarily down to one simple thing, right? Because for years under Allegri, Allegri was criticized for the style of football, right? It wasn't aesthetically pleasing. It wasn't attractive. It wasn't sexy, right? But it got results. And I think that's what we're in a results-based business and results-based game being football that you have to kind of sometimes take the good with the bad. Like Allegri would be criticized for sitting back and, oh, well, we, we barely won the game 1-0. Yeah, but you won the game and now you find yourself in the semifinal. Whereas when Maurizio Sarri, it's like, yeah, we're playing good football for 65 minutes but then we get exposed on the counter and we give up two goals and we lose, right? You played, play, play, you played good football, though, but you, got, you didn't get the result. So I think Juventus fans, I think right now their biggest focus is to kind of start to see the sorry ball that they saw at Napoli for so many years and that one year at Chelsea kind of take shape. And I think that's what they're not seeing right now. I mean, in spurts, we do see glimpses of it, but it's not in that position where for a good stretch of games, we can expect this type of Juventus. It feels like it's a week-to-week thing where they're, piece, they're getting some results here and there to get through, but they're really piecing it together. They're laboring to get victories, and that's kind of been the issue for them the entire season. What, what do you make of the Napoli-Ancelotti situation? I think we've talked about him in the past, about maybe he's kind of past its sell-by date, maybe retirement is close for him. 
it hasn't really worked out. Gattuso, I'm not sure is like... I, I wouldn't think that a lot of Napoli fans, if you ask them, if Ancelotti's leaving, who would be your first choice? I don't think that many people would say Gattuso. So w- what's the kind of consensus around Ancelotti? It seems as though he's going to resign no matter what after midweek. Could he go anywhere? And uh, what, what's the reaction been about uh, Gattuso so far? I, well, speaking on uh, Ancelotti first, because I think, you know, obviously as a, as a long-time Milan fan and a fan of Italian football, uh, Ancelotti is one of the most uh, storied and successful managers that we've, we've seen in this country, right? Um, so to see kind of this sort of ending would be, it would be uh, hurtful in, in a sense, because I think, you know, he's a manager, he, he, the way he was kind of let go from the Bayern Munich job, then to come into the Napoli job and to not really meet expectations and not really win anything. I think it's something that we're not used to seeing from Ancelotti, right? He has three Champions League trophies. He's a manager who's won everywhere. So you kind of expected him to do a little bit more at Bayern and, of course, at Napoli. But right now, things are boiling over between him and Aurelio De Laurentiis. They're not getting the results. They're, they're dipping in the table. They're not even really in the conversation for the title, which is obviously their main objective. And, you know, I think it's at some point, he was on a two-year contract. I don't think many fans were expecting this to be a long relationship. I don't think they fans expected him to be a four or five year guy like an Allegri was at Juventus. But I think they expected definitely more um, from Ancelotti. When you get a manager of his caliber, his profile, his ilk, you expect him you to be in the conversation to win every trophy imaginable. And I think more in case you also expect um, a good showing in the Champions League, which is something he's been synonymous with. So I think when when you kind of put everything together and you look at the fact that you know, there was the retreat, there's players being vocal, there's uh, the image rights things where p- players can't speak to the media. Maybe they want to be outspoken. Maybe they want to say things and get them off their chest and kind of try and rally the team. But they can't because of obviously they have things to abide by. There's a lot of moving parts with this Napoli team. And it's one of those things where you start to look at it and you start to see that it's quite clear that perhaps it's the end of their cycle, right? We, we talked about what happened with Tottenham, right? A couple episodes ago. And how people think that he maybe should have left after the, you know, they lost in the Champions League final last May or June. Now, of course, he stayed on and it kind of soured the way that his tenure went with them. So I think if you're looking at what Ancelotti's situation here, I think Napoli in a position where, look, he's not going to be going, he's not going to be coaching this team beyond this season. So let's go for a manager who can kind of turn this around, steady the ship and maybe give us some, a little bit of continuity. I mean, to be fair, you know, this is me transitioning into Catuso here. Gattuso was brought in to relieve Vincenzo Martella a couple of years ago, if you recall that in November, when they, after that summer event with the new ownership, spending all that money, and things didn't go according to plan. They envisioned Gattuso only being there probably for a half a season, and then they would reassess things. But he did such a good job that they gave him another year. They extended his contract to 2021. Now, of course, we all know what happened with him. He just missed out on the Champions League last year. And the, the gentleman he is, the respect he has for Milan, he actually did not take any severance pay from Milan. He pretty much says, I, I, I can't have this team paying me. They've given me so much. So I think that speaks volumes as to the type of manager he is, but also speaks to the type of guy he is. And I think at this point in time, maybe his, his character is needed in that dressing room because the performance on the weekend against Udinese, a 1-1 draw, I think they're winless in the last nine games in all competitions. There's a disconnect because there's too much talent in this team, Patrick, for them to be playing hmm. this badly. And I think that's the most alarming thing is that there's players who maybe have given up. There's players who have expiring contracts and they know their future is not at this club. And I think that's what kind of 
enables things to kind of leak out into the media for things to kind of be difficult on the pitch to get results. And it's just a culmination of things. And I think with Aurelio De Laurentiis looking for the manager situation to be resolved, I think that's why he's looking for a guy like Gattuso where it's on a huge profile name. He's not going to have to pay him a ton of money. He hasn't done, done well in difficult situations like he did at Milan. That's what I think he has in mind. Now, I'm not saying Gattuso is going to be the long-term solution here. According to DeMarzio, it's an 18-month deal, which I think is about right because I don't think Gattuso would sign off for just six months and then have to be back looking for another job. I think he wants some, some uh, continuity, some, some assurances. But I will say this. I think at this point in time, it's, it would be difficult for Napoli to get a manager, a big-profile manager at this, at this point, at this juncture. Right for everything we all know about the club, everything we've mentioned about players wanting to possibly leave and being sold in January, I don't think you're going to convince a top-flight manager like a Pochettino or like an Allegri or just me throwing names out here, of course, to come into the situation right now. And in many ways, you can draw parallels between this situation and Arsenal's, right? Because we talked about who, who's going to coach them. Brendan Rodgers just extended for Leicester City. He was an option, right? So you kind of start to have to eliminate who are who are the, uh, unrealistic uh, targets for the manager position and then start to go to who just makes sense at this moment in time. And I think Kutuso is one of those managers who ticks off that box. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do suppose if you're looking for that transition, you can't find your first choice. He might be a, a good, a good guy to get in, but Matt, uh, a stopgap, a stopgap yeah, manager. Yeah, sure. Um, I, I was just going to ask you about Lazio Juve. I, I know we've, we've been talking about, uh, we've been harping on about Serie A for a little bit here, but a lot has happened and, now into Milan are, are are definitely out, you know, out on on top by a point. Do you see that this this is going to be the year, right? It looks like it, um, but we've had other cases in the past where um, you could even go back to uh, two previous title uh, wins from Juventus, right? Where Juventus started off awful. This was maybe like four seasons ago, if I'm correct, three seasons ago, um, where they were awful they start I think they were maybe like in 10th place and Roma was leading the league and Napoli was at the top and Milan was right there too and Juventus come back and they win the league we saw it a couple years ago with Napoli it looked like it was going to be their year uh, finally Juventus are going to be knocked off their perch Juventus come back and they find a way to get the results and make things happen so I, I think Juventus are owed the respect the players on that team are owed the respect of not being ruled out, not being overlooked and underestimated because despite things being difficult, they only just got their first defeat. And I've seen cases where clubs go through a rough patch and by maybe December, January, man, look at this is the Juventus that everyone expected. They're playing good football. They're getting the great results. They're scoring goals. They're defending well. They're doing everything that they need at the right moment in time. And we saw that several years under Allegri. So I can't like say right now through 15 rounds that, it's going to be Inter's year, but you'd think if, if there was a year for Juventus to be knocked off and to be uh, 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 you know, you know, kicked off uh, as champions, it would have to be this year and would it have to be Inter, right? They, are the, they seem like the, the, the anti-Juve that many fans have been clamoring for, or not these non-Juventus fans have been clamoring for, to see from this league. When you look at what's going on with Inter and look at what Antonio Conte has been able to do, he's gotten a lot of players to produce at the levels we expect for them. Romelu Lukaku, for an instance. Lautaro Martinez has taken his game to another level from what we saw last year, although he was young and very good last year. He's scoring in a champions. He's scoring meaningful goals for them in the league. And that pairing looks sensational up front. The midfield has been sensational, although despite having some injuries to Sensi and Barella and, of course, Cagardini, once those players 
has come back into the fold and they're healthy and they're fit. When you put all the pieces together at this inter, it feels like what somewhat what we saw and reminiscent of what we saw at the beginning of that um, Conte dynasty, right? Mm. Where he had the nice defensive team with the veteran presence, the really good goalkeeper. The midfield was rock solid, watertight. It had a lot of good players in that midfield who could do several different things for you. And then you had those attackers who can score and get big goals. I think if you look top to bottom, Inter are built to win the Scudetto. For me, I think they need to get at least one or two players in January. I don't think they necessarily need to get you know, the 40, 40 to five, 45 to 50 million euro players. But I do think they need to bolster in certain areas to ensure that they do remain the favorites and they do remain at the top for the long haul because obviously it's a very long season. Things can happen. And right now, again, 14, 15 games in, you know, it's, you can find ways to manage, right? But if they get another big blow to a guy like Barella or Sensi in the midfield and it's beyond January, can they withstand, you know, a rough, a rough spell? Because right now, the way Juventus are playing and the way Inter are playing, it makes it feel as though that Inter are like six, seven, eight points ahead. Like what we're seeing in the, in the Premier League, you know, with Liverpool and City, right? Where they have such a large gap. Yeah. They're only two points up, which, I mean, Inter lose one game and Inter and Juve win one, they're right back at first. So I, I think it's too close to call right now, but Inter are in a really good position. And I think they have to like the way Conte has been able to transform this team in year one and doing it very quickly. Is, uh, he's got a good track record of doing that, doesn't he? I mean, you mentioned it there, the uh, resurgence of Chelsea and then obviously uh, tailing off. But but we'll move on to uh, the Premier League just for a moment because uh, there was a big upset in the uh, Manchester derby. United beating Manchester City 2-1 away from home, which was a real, real shock here, especially considering how poor um, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's men had been playing. Matt, what was your initial reaction to this one? Because for me, I mean, when I saw that they went 2-0 up, I was like, what's what's going on? I mean, conceding, because, you know, City have got some defensive issues and injuries there. Not the most surprising thing, but actually winning was was massive. Well, I think a lot of this, the, the, the performance from this Manchester United, I think really stems from what they were able to do midweek against Tottenham, right? Because there was a lot of things going on in that game, right? You had... The Jose Mourinho returns to play to coach against his former club. Obviously, it was a Tottenham team who's trying to turn things around, trying to turn their fortunes around. They, it was, it was a match that was, it was kind of, it could have been depending on how things obviously transpired in the in the Manchester derby. It, it, it either was well positioned or just the match against Tottenham came at the wrong time. But I will say this: the fact that they were able to play Tottenham and get a good result from there, I think it really fueled them to go into the Manchester derby with some more confidence, willing to play um, their type of football and, and just kind of, you know, go at Manchester City. Because this year, unlike in previous years, where, you know, Pep Guardiola, his, his team, they seem to never really kind of switch off and, and leak in goals. And they would just kind of have such a stronghold on, the, on, the, on their tie that you wouldn't have, wouldn't have to worry about them if they were down a goal early on and, you know, if they didn't look as sharp in certain areas. But this year, they feel vulnerable. They feel like you can kind of expose certain areas, as you mentioned, with their defensive woes, I think it kind of it was a nice little transition for Manchester United because they were able to get the victory against Tottenham and then go into such, to such an important match. And I think we see so many times with many big clubs is that they get such a big victory against, a, 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 you, know, you know, despite their position, Tottenham is still a big club. And then what are they doing in a big match on the weekend or in a match against a lighter opponent? They kind of, you know, uh, they're tired. They, they, they kind of disappoint. They don't get the, the proper result. 
But I think you have to look at what Ali's able to kind of do these past couple week uh, match days, and that he's getting some good results. And despite things kind of being difficult for him, uh, a Manchester Derby win and doing it in such a fashion that they did could go a very long way for his job, obviously, but for also Manchester United trying to get some sort of momentum and some sort of consistency and in getting back into the conversation for being a top four, top six club in terms of the table, of course. But I think for me, the way I saw Manchester City perform on the weekend just kind of gives you the clear indication that it just doesn't feel like their year. It feels as though, again, I don't have any insider information. I'm not saying this is a guarantee or formality. That you feel as though it's, and even Pep Guardiola's comments kind of allude to this well, kind of hints at it as well, is that he feels like it's kind of the time is somewhat done maybe at City, right? Because mm. if you even look at some of his comments, you know, I, there I saw a graphic from ESPN FC uh, this morning that pretty much showed the nets, the nets, the net spending from City in comparison to some of the other top competitors in Europe, right? Juventus, uh, Arsenal, some of the other clubs, just to name a few, and City are just head and shoulders above some of these other clubs in terms of how much they spent since Pep Guardiola arrived. And I think when you kind of put everything together, you put together the fact that Liverpool could finally win the league. Obviously, Liverpool won the Champions League last year. They made a final the year prior, and they really have such a stronghold on the table right now. With all the things that are going on in City, it almost gets the sense that, wow, like Manchester United, even in their situation, came into this derby and beat us 2-0. That's kind of what our reality is, and that you know maybe City are in that, that phase of a cycle where maybe things are going to change. They're going to see a different manager next summer. You're going to see some different players. You're going to see some more spending. Who really knows about it? But I think that's kind of what my biggest takeaway from this was because I thought that City were going to come out and have a good performance. But big ups to, to Manchester United for, for coming into that derby and getting a good result. And I think Rashford's been uh, one of the bright stars in these past couple of weeks and, and really you know, most of the season. Say what you will about some of the other players that have uh, struggled to, to gain form at Manchester United this season, but players like Rashford and Fred have emerged mm. in recent weeks. And I think, you know, it's about time, right? You know, you look at Rashford, a guy who is starting games for them. He's an academy product. You look at how much there was spent on Fred a couple a couple summers ago when Mourinho was at, uh, at the helm. They finally expected these, they're expecting these players to produce. And we're starting to see that now, whether or not it's going to be too late for them is another conversation to have. But I think that was kind of the biggest takeaway from, uh, or at least two biggest takeaways from, uh, the Manchester Derby win for Manchester United. Yeah, I think Rashford's been really, really good. I think he's got more goals and assists, or the same, or more goals than assists in the league than Mane, Salah, Sterling, which is crazy, right? And I think his his record against the top six this season is mad. It's, I think he's scored like eight or nine goals in, in some of these big games, Matt, which is like pretty much unprecedented it's kind of unheard of but to be above Sterling and Salah and Mane a lot of people who are saying you know Mane has probably been you know the player of the season so far to be at level or above of those, those guys players, is yeah. crazy right and you know shout out to Fred fair enough and I think another guy that deserves a, a shout out because he's been criticized a lot for his uh, work going forward mostly but Aaron uh, Wan-Bissaka he, yes, he was so so good against Raheem Sterling like I don't think I've ever seen anyone play that well against Raheem Sterling he was just so good and um, it was it was it felt like a Manchester United performance I think that's what Gary, this... Gary Neville and the guys after said they were like it felt like Man United this was the type of performance these this was the type of performance and outing from certain players that we saw very early on when Ollie was hired last year they got so much momentum under him when he came into the came into the position. I don't know what their exactly what their streak was, but 
it was they were play, every like all the players seemed to rally around him. They were playing well. This guy was playing well. This guy was playing well. And it just everyone seemed to raise their game a little bit. And I think that was a, the perfect case. It just felt like a man. This is the Manchester United we want and expect. And I think that's was was definitely on display on the weekend. Mm, certainly so certainly so and you know fair play to early going to show i think um now with january i'm sure they'll invest i mean they'll be at the front of the queue won't they in terms of quite a few players who who are looking to move and i'm sure that if they can get a couple of good additions in january there's you know i don't think there's any reason they can't make the top four with the kind of form and the momentum they've got at the moment but um, i'm sure chelsea will be there listen just real quick i'm yeah. sure chelsea would be there too right yeah the transfer ban was lifted they obviously didn't have a good result on the weekend uh, I mean, you know, now that the kind of, that kind of comes into play, January is going to be a fascinating one because I think there's going to be several clubs in England who see this year as an opportunity to maybe get into the top six for Europa League spot, maybe get into the Champions League. And I think that's what you're going to kind of see because certain clubs, you know, with the exception of Liverpool, I mean, you can see many teams looking and will, being willing to spend to kind of further themselves and just to kind of get through the entire season. But I just wanted to add it in there. I think there's, you know, some things going on with Chelsea that need to be mentioned. And I think the fact that they have that openness to their market, um, it just makes things fascinating in terms of the the race for the top four. Mm. I wonder if um, that's maybe one of the reasons that Chelsea have actually started doing a bit bit worse performance-wise. You've got all these young players who are playing in a very carefree, expressive way with almost no pressure. And suddenly you hear that... Chelsea have 150 million pounds to spend in January, and suddenly there's a quite a bit of looking pressure over their there, shoulder. right? Yeah, you're looking yeah. at you know your 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 uh, Christian Pulisic, your Mason Mount, your Tammy Abraham, your um, Tamori, your even Kovacic and Jorginho. You know, suddenly you're looking at your positions like, am I really safe here for the next 12, 18 months? Because well, see that, and that's the thing too, because they've had to make do with what they had because of the ban and it forced a lot of players to raise their game and to perform, right? A lot of these young players that you just mentioned. I don't think anybody expected Tommy Abraham to be amongst the top goal scorers, but all of a sudden he has an injury, what I think it was last weekend or the weekend prior, or the Champions League, excuse me, and all of a sudden you're like, well, they need a striker because I don't think they can expect Tommy Abraham to front the line for 30-something games a year plus in the Champions League plus in cup play. Like, there's an expectation that they're going to get more players in certain areas. And when you, you made a great point in what you alluded to and the fact that you start to look over your shoulder because a lot of these players, when it's easy to maybe do your job and to do it well when you don't have to worry about your job and your job status and your position. But all of a sudden when players come back from you know, injury, like Antonio Rudiger, for instance, you know, how does that affect certain players who are saying, well, look, now I got to actually fight and earn my job where I was, I was, it was, I was thrusted into this job because Let's face it, we really had no other options to go for. So I think that's going to be an interesting dynamic to follow, um, you know, really in the build-up to the window, but also after the window, is that how certain players who had really good starts for Chelsea under Frank Lampard and a lot of the younger ones, and how they ultimately respond to maybe some inner squad competition. Because you know, I always say competition breeds excellence, and in normal cases, you know, you want to have depth at multiple positions, but sometimes that depth for um, younger players when it comes in the form of a veteran could be threatening and it could kind of you know make things difficult for for those younger players to get that confidence back start scoring goals start producing and start you know defending and, and all that stuff so I, I think Chelsea are going to be a team that you know is definitely 
um, you know, one to be active in the summer, in non-summer, excuse me, in January. Summer two, probably. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> uh, one man who is still scoring goals, uh, Lionel Messi. I don't know if you saw his performance the other the other night, Matt. It was a oh, uh, thing of beauty. I mean, after winning the Ballon d'Or, <laughs> he there was a really funny um, tweet that I saw. It was gonna. It was kind of like the guy came came onto the pitch with a go- uh, you know with a golden ball and left with a match ball, which was quite funny. <laughs> Yeah, he, he, listen, I, I don't, I've run out of words to just kind of express how much I, I am delighted to watch this guy play. And I think it's, it's kind of universal, right? You don't have to be a Barcelona fan. You don't have to be an Argentina fan to respect and admire and just appreciate greatness when you see it. When I see with Messi, it's week to week. It's like one of those things where in, in certain jobs and occupations and professions, where you see a guy, it's like, hey, you guys, you've just been awarded the best doctor of, in the world. Oh, let's go on vacation. Let's, you know, kind of step, switch off. Let's relax, turn the phone off. Let's get away. Right? He comes off winning the Ballon d'Or and just just keeps going. And you wonder and you ask yourself, when is this guy going to like have a down year? And I think that's the, 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 the thing that kind of blows my mind the most about Messi. And, of course, obviously, Ronaldo, I know he's having a tough year now, but in terms of his body of work overall, is that even when Messi like, – you look at the end of the year numbers for players like Messi, and you feel as though like – Oh, he only like ah, it was kind of a down year. He only had like thirty something goals and like twenty something assists. And people look at like Messi's numbers, and it feels like he's not like yeah. Obviously, he's doing you know a week to week, but it feels as though sometimes that like his some of his great outstanding performances in the league and in Champions League sometimes get overlooked. Is it just me and thinking that because we're so we expect him to be so great and perform at such a high level every week that if he does something that's kind of around the same it's like oh that's just messy being messy like that's nothing new nothing to see here move on to the next performance because he's doing things like scoring two or three goals and you know you know providing a player with a great assist and then we kind of will celebrate it look at it and saying oh that's just messy because that's such the standard that's standard right now that's the expectation and then we look at like a great goal a one-off goal from a player you know for example like what Roma did with uh Florenzi in the Champions League several years ago with Barcelona and everyone tweets the gif and they talk about the player and, and you know they do that the entire week is it is it me or does it feel as though like Messi like as strange as it sounds he doesn't get as much credit as he as he possibly should for how consistently top class he's been in every category uh numbers category of course because I see what he does on a week-to-week basis and it's one of those things where we have we're so used to it that we're almost numb to the fact that it's so special well the reason why we're numb um is because he's been doing it for 10 years straight. There was, the, I, I don't know if you follow Stats Bomb, Matt. Um, yes, I, the, the, I saw that radar. You saw yeah, that it's radar? It's, it's, it's insane. Like, if you guys aren't massive stats heads, but um, I think there was something about, like, yeah. Uh, oh, man, I can't find it. I'm trying to search it up now, but it's basically like all the main it's identical. Were like it's identical. Filled. It's yeah. pretty much the same. Um, he, he basically has more or less the same stats that he had when he was you know 22 uh, 10 years ago i think the only ones that have gotten better are touches in the box and uh shots and i think the ones that have got worse are maybe dribbles but only by like a 0.2 uh you know uh percentage it's like it's like a mad small amount that he's uh reduced uh in terms of being fouled and dribbles or something like that but it's it's crazy i think that's why we are numb to it like um and and maybe that's why you know uh, there's so much pressure on young players nowadays you look at Kylian mbappe and 
I think I had a conversation with the with people a while ago, uh, probably friends at a group chat and stuff. You know, when when all said and done, like make make no two two ways about it. Mbappe would probably be known when he finishes his career as one of the greatest players of all time. There, there is absolutely no doubt about it. I mean, you're talking about a guy who was the best player on a team that won the World Cup when he was 19, right? That hasn't been done since yeah. Pele. Like, come on. And, like, do you know what I mean? Like, and people are like, oh, and, no way. You know, Mbappe will never do that. And, and you the know, craziest thing Ronaldo, too. But they're like, come on, really? And the craziest, And the craziest thing too is that, you know, we'll have to wait and see how the Europe fairs next summer and of course obviously the next World Cup but when we look back at the career of a guy like Kylian Mbappe you know assuming all things go according to plan as you just mentioned you know he could be one of those players that gets credit to kind of being the, the guy at the start of a dynasty right because I mean some people may forget the fact that you know France they were in the Euro final the previous Euro right they lost to Portugal a team that they were probably better than, but on that day, Portugal were the better side. So you can be looking at a guy like Kylian Mbappe as a, one of the kind of the, the golden boys to start a great generation and a dynasty for French football. And I think that's also a very big key thing. Obviously, a lot of things have to come into play, right? I think he also has to have that domestic success uh, beyond uh, league competition, right? Because they've been running that mm-hmm. league for many years. I think he has to translate that onto the Champions League, but he did it at Monaco. He's do he's scoring goals for PSG. Now we'll have to see if PSG can kind of take that next step. But you just look at players like that, and you you kind of start to see who like that's where I I, I my, my I myself always kind of get a little bit um, upset and a little bit kind of confused when I see the term legend and once in a generation like these these meme accounts and these these football accounts use these names so these these terms so loosely. And they're, free, they're, they're freely giving them out to any player that has like a good spell who, who's tearing up a league at such a young age and these players fall off. Like, you look at what Messi is. He's a generational talent. Ronaldo, Mbappe, there's certain players that have it. There's tears to a, a being a football player and kind of status to being a, in, in football and judging football players, right? I think we are so quick to label world-class. Well, what is world-class? Is world-class the top, a top 40, 50 player? If that's your definition of world-class, then fine. But you know, there's got to be consistency. It can't be, oh, this guy's a world-class defender that he's having two good seasons at a, at a smaller club at 21. He's not world-class. I mean, that, that, that's what I find fascinating. And I think that's where we have to kind of, as football fans and you know, pundits, journalists, writers, content creators, whatever you want to call us, get back to understanding what is greatness, what is um, you know, truly, what truly makes a legend a legend, and Messi is just embodies that, right? Because you, he checks off all the boxes. There's the numbers. There's there's the consistency. There's the trophies. There's the whole entire body of work speaks to his excellence, and I think that's what really kind of summa- summarizes Messi really well is the fact that he's doing it well in, in you know, beyond his 30s. Yes, but he's really not showing any signs of slowing down. Now, obviously people are going to continue, continuously compare him to Ronaldo because we're seeing a, a drop in performances from Ronaldo, who's, what, 34, I think going to be 35 in February. We'll have to wait and see. But right now, I think the fact that Ronaldo's kind of dipping in his production has, in a way, kind of elevated Messi's status mm. because I think they're seeing, like, wow, we're seeing the drop-off of Ronaldo. So now it's kind of casting all spotlights and attention back on Messi as the, he's head and shoulders. He's the best player right now. 
definitely. I mean, there's no doubt about it. He is um, sensational at the moment. Although we always do tend to write off Ronaldo at this kind of point in time. And uh, well, that's exactly my point. That's why I said I can't. can't, That's why I said I can't rule out Juventus. Right? We talked about the league title for Serie A, and I'm like, Ronaldo's a guy that if they if he scores 11 goals in the league, but he scores six in the knockout stages, they get to a Champions League final and win. People like Ronaldo's back. He's they don't care about the, the regular team, regular season, regular, you know, the competition. So I think that's what you know, makes the game so special is that just when you think Ronaldo's finished, because there was a couple seasons ago where Ronaldo had a really rough first half and Real Madrid looked bad. And all yeah. of a sudden, that second half, Real Madrid pick it back up. They win the Champions League and all of a sudden Ronaldo's at the heart of it. So you can't rule, you can't, you know, rule out these players, even if they go through a little bit of a rough patch. And I think that's the same way with Ronaldo. Yeah, well... We'll wait and see. We'll wait and see what happens there. Uh, Matt, anything else before we get into our player profile here? I think that's it. I'm ready for the player profile. Right. uh, Right. Here comes the player profile. Hey, guys. Before we get into the player profile, we're just going to get a quick message in from the Kid It Out friends. It's a great fundraiser, so listen in. Hello. I am Paul from Kid It Out. Uh, Kid It Out is an organization set up by me, uh, my partner Michelle and a friend John and what Kitted Out is is a organisation who get kits donated from the public and then we get them onto youth clubs and community centres to people who may not be able to afford their own kit due to all di- different circumstances. So far we've visited over 10 community centres, we've delivered over four, 500 kits up to now and it's been amazing it's been amazing seeing all the sensors and all the good work that they do it's been amazing seeing the kids who get the kits it's just been amazing all around to see all the good work that's been going on in the city of liverpool uh, so far we've had uh, everyone tweeting us from neville southall to jamie carragher to people in italy the milan brothers the Serie sit down show just amazing names who are retweeting and messaging us and offering to send us kits. We've been followed on Twitter by Florentina, Valencia, Leverkusen, AS Roma. Uh, AS Roman have sent a parcel with kits to us to so to help our cause, which is absolutely extraordinary. Uh, so it's been an amazing journey and hopefully it continues on. We still need kids. There's still kids out there who are playing football in school uniforms because they haven't got kids to play in. Uh, there's kids playing out there with with pumps on because they can't afford uh, boots or suitable footwear for the football pitch so they can't play in school shoes so they get turned away. Kids are getting took out of school football teams because the parents can't afford a kit for them. So it's it's a massive help, all the kits that we get. As I say, we shouldn't have to do this in this current day and age. We're easily one of the top ten richest countries in the world and poverty is rife, so it shouldn't be happening. Uh, but if you want to get in touch with us, you can through Facebook and Twitter at Kit It Out uh, and just donate the kits. It's for a great cause. Have a look at what we're doing and onwards and upwards. Thank you very much.
Right, so we're going to talk a little bit about Mason Greenwood because I don't think we've talked about him before, Matt. He's kind of the the only stellar English talent that we haven't talked about yet. And I'm not sure if you've seen him play much. I, I've seen him play quite a bit. I've seen him play um, you know, in spurts. Obviously, I, I got a good glimpse of him in the International Champions Cup, um, which was obviously on display. It was, it's a good opportunity for your players in the state, people in the States, and just in general to kind of see who, what, your, what, what your club is grooming in the youth system. And I think Mason Greenwood is one of those players where, um, if you ask any Manchester United fan, he's probably at the top of their list of players they're very excited to see kind of grow into the team and become a first-team regular. Yeah, so he's a uh, you know, left-footed, but actually really, really two-footed um, player, uh, um, Mason Greenwood. And he's got a stunning record for the youth teams. Recently got called up to the uh, England under-21s. Plays kind of like a number 9, 10 or out wide, usually on the right. Um, the way he strikes the ball is quite similar to Robin Van Persie. Uh, and he's kind of the same kind of languid, uh, lanky kind of uh, height and style of footballer. Obviously a bit more athletic and dynamic. Really good finisher as well. Hasn't had the greatest impact so far for Manchester United. I think there was a lot of pressure put on him, particularly when they didn't replace Lukaku. I think Ole Gunnar Solskjaer did a lot of kind of hyping up of Mason Greenwood, which is obviously never the easiest environment to come into. It's very hard when a manager puts that much pressure on the, you know, 17 or 18 year old. But overall, he's done quite well, scored a couple of goals in the Europa League. But he's certainly a guy that's going to become more and more focal for Manchester United, especially if they persist with not signing another forward I think it's going to be really interesting to see how much more game time he gets in the Europa League as that competition persists uh, actually goes forward he's had I think a couple starts in the Premier League neither of which have been amazingly impressive but I'm sure uh, better things will come from him and he will score goals he's a very good finisher and whether that's at Man United or he goes on loan next year if United sign a striker but it, it seems to be that he will be staying there for the foreseeable and actually playing some minutes as he has been done doing this season. Uh, of course, it depends whether or not United get into the Champions League next season, but it does look like his progression isn't going to be stalled at the moment by kind of, you know, incoming big players or just uh, an internal other solution like a Rashford that comes out of nowhere. I think the pressure on him is a bit bigger, though, because with Rashford, he kind of came out of nowhere, as I mentioned. But... With Greenwood, he's just been seen as that guy from the youth team for about a year or so now. And the the pressure's obviously quite big on him. Uh, and he's probably or hopefully going to kind of return his manager's faith in goals and, and assists and, and match-winning performances in the coming, you know, 18 or 24 months. And the thing is, that what's great is that a guy, a player like Greenwood um, and just in youth products in general is that as a fan of that club, there's just a, a different level of attachment, a, a more intense attachment to those sorts of players because you feel like you've kind of followed their course to the first team. You know, you, you know we, we hear so much about, oh, this player's coming through. We don't get a chance, to, you know, to watch. And it's funny, I was talking to, um, you know, this was years and years ago when I first started writing, um, and I was covering a lot of Milan's youth products, right? Who was coming through the system? Who I should keep an eye on? Who fans should look out for? Um, and there was a, a, an individual who would actually attend all the, the youth, the Primavera games. He lived in the area. He was very close to the ground. Um, and he would attend the games. And he was like, look for this guy. I would do profiles. He would kind of give me the inside scoop. And he talked about Patrick Cutrone, right? He has such a great record, uh, score record for the Primavera. He's uh, had a really good start at for, for his career at Milan. Of course, he's now at Wolves. But 
there's a there's a certain attachment you have to these youth players um, because you feel that you don't have to teach the importance of the, wearing that jersey and what it means to put that shirt on. And I think that's something that in in the modern game, I think we can sometimes overlook when we are looking for um, other things in, in, in a player to start for your team, right? We look at the skill, this, that, the transfer fee, all these there's things. But I think it really comes down to um, in football and, and, and still, you know, laying that importance in the player knowing where he's at, the significance of his situation and how grateful and blessed he should be in that situation. I think, you know, it's, it's, there's a certain attraction that I have, at least as I know there's, I know I don't romanticize around certain players and I, you know, it, the game, it, it, the game is just that, right. But I'm sure there's youth players that you've watched as an Arsenal fan where when the guy finally comes up through the system that you feel like I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see this guy. I'm excited for him because I feel like I grew with him. I feel like I kind of watched and monitored his course to the first team, a team that I love. And I think that's what Manchester United fans hope to see with a guy like Greenwood, who's obviously has, who obviously has the, the talent behind him. And he seems like a very good kid, a very technical a player, a player that can do several different things for, for, uh, for Manchester United. So I think it's, it's going to be fascinating to see his growth and his emergence over the next year or so. For me, I would love to see a player like Greenwood stay at Manchester United, even if his opportunities are not extremely limited, but he can still get some occasional runs in the team because I think it's very important to be in that, be in that locker room, be in that dynamic, train with you know, class players, train with champion players. But at the same time, also understand and know what it takes to make it in, in the first team. For sure. And um, I mean, you talked about playing with those class players. There's not that many there anymore at Man United, but I, I do know what you mean. It's But there's, but there, but there's, but, but, there's something about a young yeah. player stepping on the pitch or coming on at Old Trafford, right? As a young yeah, player, sure. you know what I'm saying? And I think that's kind of the biggest thing. And I think you see that, you know, I saw that with so many times with Putrone where, he, he loved, genuinely loved putting on the shirt. And I think there's a lot of players now who, look, they have other reasons and other, and other motivations for why they play this game. There, there's, there's the high wages and there's nothing against that. But I think there's something to be said about a youth player who comes to this system and plays because if you feel that that player has just a little bit extra motivation, a little bit extra desire and, and, and willingness to want to prove that he deserves this, this, this opportunity and that he, this is everything he's worked for. So I think that's kind of what you want to see from a guy like Mason Greenwood. He's getting that feeling of being at Old Trafford and kind of feeding off the environment and being one of those next wave, as part of the next wave of, of good and great Manchester United players. Hmm. Uh, well, I think that's all we've got time for with the player profile and that's all we've got time for with the episode, Matt. Uh, where can people find out more about you? You guys can follow me on Twitter at Matt underscore Santangelo and I... Uh... Thank you guys so much for the support. I got some uh, pod, great podcast appearances coming up. So make sure you guys are following me on Twitter for uh, updates on those. Yeah, and you can find me at Pet Berisha, P-E-T-B-E-R-I-S-H-A. And you can follow us at State of Play Pod, State of Play Pod. And shout outs to the Big Heads Media Group before we forget the podcast network that we're part of. Do check them out as well if you get a minute. Thank you all very much for watching. Watching? Listening. You're listening to podcasts. Uh, and have a great day. <laughs> nice.